KFBS. Sit Rap with Christopher Vicky Turner, thank you very much indeed, and the BFBS Newsroom, thank you as well. And thank you for joining us today at SITREP Roundtable. You are very welcome in the next hour. Prince Charles in Afghanistan. Um, Afghanistan, why the answers are harder than the questions. Afghanistan again, talking to the enemy, should we? And Taliban online, um, getting it right, I suppose. Iraq, Mesol Miracle, Mossad, the myth blown. Foreign and Commonwealth Office, going, going, gone? Not quite bust yet. Why the pirates are heading east, and what the papers say, the latest Middle East crisis, why isn't it obvious, and corruption at Westminster, and why we're still telling others to clean up their act while we start with Afghanistan. At lunchtime today, here in London, Commander Task Force Hellman, Brigadier James Cowan, and Peter Hawkins, Deputy Head of Development of the Hellman uh, Province Provincial Reconstruction Team, gave an MOD video link update on 11 Light Brigades Tour. At the briefing, the defence editor of the Times, Deborah Haynes. Deborah, welcome. Um, I mean, I was going to say who said what, and one of the things that strikes me that by now it's very difficult, isn't it, for um, unless there's a special announcement for the military to be able to say anything that is sort of new. Um, yes, that's very true. Um, I guess when Operation Mosturak, um, the big operation that was launched last month, happened then anything they said was, uh, was, a, was a big news story. Whereas now, you know, the big, the big, the big offensive has taken place and obviously on the ground important things are going on. So that's the UK with an election and other things keep people's attention. It's very hard to, to grab interest. Uh, we, I mean, with Brigadier, though, and Peter Hawkins uh, of the uh, Provincial Reconstruction Team, there was the important message, wasn't it? I mean, the, the two important elements standing alongside each other. Oh, yes, absolutely. And what they said was really interesting. Um, I'm happy to give you an update if you want to please, know. Please, please. <laughs> um, well, well for, for the Brigadier, obviously, he's coming to the end of his tour. And um, he said that he's coming home in the next couple of weeks. So he was really looking back over what's been achieved over the last six months, um, which was obviously a particularly difficult tour, which was unusual because it was uh, over the winter months. Um, and we did have this big Operation Mosturak. Um, so he was really highly, highlighting... Um, the, the sort of the successes on that front in certain parts of the province, but then also mentioning how Sangin um, is still an area of concern. And um, he said it was undoubtedly um, the biggest challenge uh, for the British forces. Do you know, I mean, the other thing that's fascinated me was the Royal Marine Major General Gordon Messenger. I mean, he's uh, he was actually sort of chairing this. He's, I suppose, the CDS's uh, spokesman now. This is a relatively new idea to have somebody like him, isn't it? Um, yes, it is. Um, and uh, I guess for us, the media, it, it makes um, it, it's good to have somebody who's actually been out there on the front line and um, can talk from experience and authority about what's going on. Um, it kind of it gives a bit more um, to what he says. It's actually a, a good thing to have him there. Yeah, but there's also a sense that they've got to have him there. Why didn't they think? Why didn't they have somebody uh, in uniform that, by and large, the media believe people in uniform rather than in, in, in <laughs> civilian clothes? Why then you just got round to doing this? I know they're a bit slow off the mark there. I, I mean, I guess we've been in Helmand for a long time now. Well, we've been in Iraq for even longer. Um, so I, I don't know why it didn't happen sooner, but it's um, a welcome change. Yeah, I mean, been in Hellman since he was a colonel. Oh, well. OK, <laughs> listen, while you're on, um, 
this the thing we've had is the plans to to produce 700 million pounds worth of so-called efficiency savings in, in in the MOD. What do you make of that? Yeah, it's a, it's a bit strange. The the um the the sort of press yesterday. Um, I did call back the press office and ask what what they meant when they said they had like you know massive savings in on um, delivery of things like IT and food. <laughs> um, and they told me that what it meant was that they're going to, instead of, say, for example, um, the, the stationary suppliers for the whole uh, Ministry of Defence and various branches of the armed forces, instead of um, people using different suppliers for their pencils and pens and notepads, um, they're going to all use the same supplier, so sort of centralising it. Uh, and the same on the food front. Uh, it, it, it is surprising that they could save so much money by doing what sounds such a simple thing. Um, so, uh, so yes, uh, not, not entirely clear how that's going to be achieved. Right. Deborah Haynes of The Times, thank you very much indeed. Now, uh, with me in the studio, the former Daily, Dip, Daily Mail diplomatic editor, John Dickey, and from University College London, the global defence mm-hmm. analyst at that place, Dr Marty McCauley. Uh, <coughs> John, um, I, won't, uh, I won't test everybody's uh, imagination by asking how come the MOD's only just come up with £700 million of saving if they're going to save on sandwiches and, and bring your own pencils sort of stuff. Uh, more importantly, I think, is that Prince Charles, in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. the most senior uh, uh, royal uh, to go there, princes and there mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago, Indeed, I think it's very important. It, it gives a, a sense of commitment right from the very top. And it's at a very difficult time. I know my colleagues in Fleet Street are desperately anxious to get more and more success stories into print. And it isn't easy because things on the ground don't happen as quickly as that. In some ways, and it's hard to understand. It's hard to understand. In some ways, it's easier for our television colleagues. There have been some very good um, on-the-spot coverage by, for example, Channel 4 News, which showed all the difficulties of the mine detection units and all the hazards of their job. This came across very effectively. But in print, it's rather difficult to convey the day-by-day slog to, you know, increase the the success story. Obviously, enough for headlines. It's not easy. Yeah, and also the uh, the images uh, that we've seen today, for example, Prince Charles in a you know tropical suit, not doing the sort of hairy uh, "I'm here with me heavy boots" stuff. No, it was very impressive because uh, it was only recently uh, that uh, immediately after the rack inquiry, the prime minister went out there. He didn't go on his you know, chinos. He went there in his uh, somber suit and his, his tie on. It looked totally out of place. Whereas Prince Charles has a real feel for being there with the troops, seeing what they're undergoing. Yeah. Well, that's because he was a naval officer, isn't it? Yes. Um, Martin, Martin McCauley, <laughs> tell me about this image thing, because uh, as the war goes on, and, you know, as Deborah Haynes would say, it's very difficult sometimes you can... You, it's very difficult to answer questions because they're not very interesting questions anymore because we've heard all the questions, we've heard all the answers. Yes, it's very difficult indeed because the longer a war goes on without any catastrophic uh, defeats or uh, stunning victories, uh, it's very, more and more difficult to get space in newspapers or in television uh, because the average person wants something which is happening, mm. something which is new. And so on. And the average person doesn't want to be told, uh, well, what they were doing today was basically the same as yesterday. They're doing it brilliantly, but it's very, very dangerous and so on. But then you said that yesterday, you say, the average person loses interest. Mm. And the trouble is, you've got all these names. 
uh, Afghan names and so on. Uh, and unless you get a map in your head, you don't know where is Helmand Province? Um, is that south or north or something like that? You have to this map of Afghanistan in your head if you want to follow it seriously. And the average person, I presume, listens for about five seconds and then switches off. There is, John, uh, an example here that during the Bosnia uh, operation, there was a complete switch-off, apparently, according to, I think it was nine opinion polls in the United Kingdom in that period of the 90s, early 90s, simply because people didn't know where the different places were, they mm. couldn't pronounce the names, they, the only name mm. they ever knew was Carriage. And also where they knew about Sarajevo, because uh, that was where they had seen the Olympic skating of Tovlandin being successful. But there, when you saw the, uh, the deprivation of the civilians, yeah, that hit home very hard. Yes, Srebrenica was mm. understandable <coughs> yes. to people. Mm. And that, but nobody, that I mean, a... if you went out on the street now, mm -hmm. I mean, we're in Broadcasting House, you went down to the most populous street in mm. London and said, Srebrenica, blank faces nowadays. Mm. And also... Who'd done what? Yeah. Blank faces. Mm. That, was a, that was a big event, you see. Uh, that was a, a big uh, human rights violation and so on. So that made news. It mm. was really big news at the time. And people had to learn the mm. word Srebrenica mm. uh, and so on. Uh, and now in Afghanistan, if you, asked, you went to, uh, out on the street and asked, name me a few towns in Afghanistan, mm. uh, for instance, where uh, troops are and mm. so on, uh, probably only one in ten could give you a name. Yeah, OK, listen, uh, continuing with Afghanistan, I was thinking uh, yesterday that all conflicts um, historically then with the gold benefit, don't mm. they, that people are actually signing up, signing up for defeat or victory, and people say it's, mm. it's one or the other for common sense. Um, people have got to talk to each other. Martin, uh, you never make peace with your friends. You never make peace with your enemies. You have to make peace with the enemies. It's easier. It's what's see. going on at the moment, isn't it? Attempts you, to do yes, exactly you, you that. Have to, it's backdoor stuff. Uh, sounding out, trying to split the enemy and trying to find out those Taliban who will mm. cooperate, you can do a deal with, uh, and who really want to move from war to mm. peace. And separate them from the, if you like, the fundamentalists who say, no, uh, this is a jihad, mm. we're going to continue until the last soldier has been mm. killed or is left. Right. John, we've got at the moment, apparently, apparently, um, we've got the Afghan president, Hamid Karzai, mm. He's been be meeting the um, envoys, I think they're called, yes. from the foreign former uh, prime minister, Hek uh, uh, Batyar. Yeah. Um, talking peace to the right man? Yeah. I don't know. I remember meeting Hek Maktar uh, doing his Mujahideen role when he was fighting against the Russians. I was in Peshawar and I was taken to a so-called safe house to see him, but... My impression then, and it's still my impression now, is that he's a ruthless, dangerous man who stop at nothing. His human rights violations are awful. And anyway, although he led this delegation to Karzai, and it's a good thing they've actually met, I don't see any real progress at the moment because his basic demand is he will not talk until all American troops are out of his country. And he wants them out by the summer, doesn't he? He wants them out by the summer. And... And he wants to control uh, his part of eastern, uh, western uh, Afghanistan. And he wants to he use... wants the taxes mm -hmm. from it, doesn't yes, he? Yes, mm -hmm. and he wants to move from that base... He's just an old-fashioned warlord, that's yeah. all. And mm -hmm. you, look, you get the Uzbeks and the Turkmen and the others in the north, and, and if they can come together, then that's, a, that's a, if you like, a wedge against mm -hmm. Karzai, who's the Pushtun and so mm -hmm. on, there to the south. So again, we go mm -hmm. back to this problem of Afghanistan. It's clan and it's ethnic. OK, John, I remember 15 years ago... Mm -hmm. Uh, you and I having the same sort of discussion about Northern Ireland, and uh, you'll never get an agreement with people like McGuinness, uh, etc. 
he's, he's, he's almost running the show now. That's it. I'm, I mean, I'm not against that, but no, I'm just but, uh, saying that could happen in Afghanistan. True. I mean, it, it, it was the same in Cyprus. Nobody wanted to talk to Archbishop Macarius in Kenya. Nobody wanted to talk there to... To Joma um, Kenyatta. Joma Kenyatta. You have to at some stage. <laughs> and also, of all of all, uh, Robert Gabriel Mugabe. Bobby. Nobody wanted to talk to him. No, and there you had to talk to him. Yeah. Okay. Um, you cannot choose the people with whom you negotiate. No. <laughs> yes, well, if you, it's if like you, your relatives. If, isn't you, it? if you take China, for instance, the yeah. battle between Mao, who was a winner, the communist winner, and Chiang Kai-shek, backed by the Americans and so on, Mao was very clever. He always talked to Chiang. Uh, and he always Chiang Kai-shek. Chiang Kai-shek said nice things to him and so on. But at... Uh, uh, at the back of his mind was, I'm going to get you someday. He said, the, 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 China is too small for both of us. Mm-hmm. So therefore, uh, you have one type of leader. Well, he was right, he kicked him out. He, he, he won in the end. You have two types of leader. Uh, one uh, who's going to sacrifice everything to achieve his goal. And the other who's a very clever, long-term politician. OK, listen, let's remind ourselves that this war in Afghanistan is not simply about... Uh, the tragedy of IEDs and AK-47s. Taliban increasingly uses the internet to generate popular support and undermine local governments and task force. On the line from King's College London Centre for Science and Security Studies, Tim Stevens. Um, Tim, this, the, the, the very sophisticated use of, for example, email and websites, it's not as if they've suddenly clicked upon it, uh, literally. It's because that's where the technology is now, and that's all come up in the past, what, four or five years? Yes, well, uh, if you think about it, uh, the, the Taliban view themselves as being very legitimate, and in a the sense they're just using standard operating procedures from various other types of organizations. So when you see reports that they're issuing press releases by email, it's just what everyone else does as well. Um, and insurgent groups have long had media and press offices, for example, you know, became very important in, in the television era, and the Internet has made it even easier to access global communications networks. Uh, insurgents don't have to rely on the gatekeepers to those networks anymore, like you know traditional newspapers, television, radio stations, and they can get around political control of those networks and, and just put stuff on the internet. And that's the great advantage. Whereas, for example, you get a, I don't know if you're going to have a, a statement. I mean, there was a thing that, uh, in 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 the MOD today. Um, an update on what's happening in Afghanistan. I mean, that took ages to put together for permissions, who was going to say what, uh, etc. If you're a Taliban, you can actually just sort of sit around and say, OK, that's what we're saying, and you don't have ministers and, and, and press officers to hack it. That's precisely the point. And when we're talking about asymmetric warfare, there's a few things that are the more asymmetric than, than the use of the media. Um, and the media advantage almost always accrues to the Taliban in this case, in the first instance, because they don't have electorates to answer to. They can say what they want and they can spin what they want. And even though critics would say that ISAF and the Afghan government do the same, there are very different regimes of accountability in operation here. And ISAF does have a very sophisticated media campaign, but it does at least try to pre- present the truth as much as it can without jeopardizing either its political mission or operational security. The same does not apply to the Taliban. Taliban isn't simply um, having a go at radicalization. It's getting to the, let's call them the educated elite in Afghanistan. Yes. um, I I don't know the exact details of that. Um, I'd be quite cautious about that. I mean, obviously, access to the Internet in Afghanistan is a function of economics, not just of education. I mean, economics and education obviously related. Um, But, I mean, a lot of the educated elite 
are currently very closely associated, associated with the Afghan government. So whether the Taliban are trying, how the Taliban are actually trying to influence those individuals and groups, I, I don't know. I think it's actually far more likely that the Taliban are trying to target global Muslim populations uh, and trying to tap into other sources of Amer- anti-American dissatisfaction as well. Yeah. Do you know, when I, I'm, I've looked at a couple of these sites, Alamera, for example, and uh, I'm all struck by the... I was going to say the sophisticated level and the fact that you get a battle, uh, you, you, you get a battle report uh, and you, I, I just cynically say, oh, yeah, I, I wonder if that's true. But then I find, well, I've not got a battle report from anybody else. That's yeah. difficult. It is, it is. Um, and obviously, as, as you alluded to, um, ISAF has to be extremely careful about what it says and why it says it. Um, it does, it's trying to give the full picture. Um, but with such a complex military operation, the last thing you want is to jeopardize operational security. I mean, we saw this with the Israelis recently. Um, uh, one of their IDF soldiers posted something on Facebook the day before a major operation, and the operation had to be, had to be pulled. Um, and that's the sort of thing you don't, that the ISAF doesn't really want to happen. Mm. The last, po- last point on this, Tim, um, I suppose this cyber war, it's a, it's a battlefield, isn't it, That'll, that unfortunately it might convince populations that time's up on the conflict yes uh, this this isn't a cyber war in, in my opinion this is this is a media campaign as part of an insurgency and, and this is this sort of battle has always been at the heart of insurgency and of course at the heart of counterinsurgency doctrine who prevails in the struggle of minds and wills of the populations involved but yes i mean you can never discount the importance of the media and media representations of the conflict of politics of ideas absolutely critical in modern insurgencies uh, and militaries western militaries know this perfectly well but at, you know at the end of the day it takes people to uh, end the conflict and, and not machines right tim stevens thank you yet again uh john i mean i suppose i'm thinking of things like uh malaya um and psyops etc this is simply another uh, another way of doing it it is in a very important way because you have to get your message across to every little village community that is listening in. And I think you can gain a lot of friends and gain a lot of assistance by putting your side of the case. Mm. Jo- um, Martin, just a, just a quick uh, diversion from that. Pakistan, in Washington at the moment, I mean, say Pakistan, um, we've had the um, Pakistan's army chief, uh, General Ashfaq uh, Kayani, He's been there talking to the chiefs of staff. We've had the um, Pakistan foreign minister, Shah Mahmood uh, Qureshi. Mm. He's there yesterday talking to uh, Hillary Clinton, the Secretary of State. It's quite an offensive going on, isn't there, with with Pakistan? Americans are waking up to figure out that they're the people that might end this war. Yes, and uh, they're um, associating and communicating much more closely with them. Uh, but there is one factor which, which the general will bring up. That's the collateral damage caused by these drones uh, who take out uh, a Taliban or al-Qaeda man, uh, but then take out 20 or 30 civilians as well. And, uh, of course, these drones are fired from Virginia and places like that. So uh, that would be one thing he'd be talking about. Uh, we could lose this war. We could lose a PR war to go back to communicating with people and so on. Because the average person would say, it's not worth the candle. Uh, why is Pakistan getting involved in America's war? So therefore, the, there will be a, a talking on how we, can, how we can restrict collateral damage, target the Taliban more effectively, uh, push them out. They've effectively pushed them out of Waziristan and a lot of Uzbeks out of Waziristan, uh, which is very successful. Uh, but again, uh, they have to win the PR battle. 
Um, John, let's come and have a look at the uh, the Middle East. Uh, uh, Chatham House, your uh, your think tank. Um, there's a long debate going on at the moment there, two days, I think, uh, on what's called the post-American Iraq. Um, I mean, um, Iraq at the moment is going through a terrible problem of finding out who actually won the election and charges of corruption and, and fraud, which uh, doesn't bode well for the future, does it? It's not easy. It's not been here. Both sides, uh, al-Maliki and al-Awi, have been shouting fraud and cheats. But I think we might know something more tomorrow because the uh, sort of the final count uh, <laughs> is due to be announced tomorrow, and there were uh, sort of demands for a recount. They've been they've been rejected. Um, the difficulty is you don't. I mean, they're rejected by the observers. Observers, um, you don't necessarily get a clear indication of how a government can be formed simply by seeing the number of votes that have gone to the two main contenders. It all depends on the. Uh, number of seats available in certain areas. So that will probably mean a lot of uh, horse trading and bargaining going on for several weeks yet. Yeah, Martin, Iraq may not Mm. yet be classified as a (coughs) failed state, but it displays many of the frailties of state failure, doesn't it? Yes, 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 but uh, Iraq is just starting along a very, very long road, and uh, you can congratulate them on actually conducting the election. And the fact that al-Maliki... We, hang on, hang on. We can congratulate them <laughs> on conducting the election. We all say that. Uh, and it, that doesn't make the whole process any more legitimate. No, but, it, it, but the more elections you have, the, uh, from a point of view of democratic theory, uh, the more elections you have, the more people get used to it and they accept it, it legitimises a certain Only in process. certain countries, Martin. If you look at what's happening in Sudan, I mean... Uh, Bashir has been holding his own former elections for he, 20 he, years. He understands authoritarian uh, democracy. But to go back to uh, uh, Iraq, Ma- al-Maliki is, is uh, screaming and shouting because he hasn't got as many votes as he thought he would. And some observers say it's the first election in which people have not voted according to their religious affiliation. At the beginning, to look at the various options and say, right, uh, that's one which I prefer and so on. And it's a, big, it's a slow process. Uh, the other the positive thing about Afghanistan is they're lifting a lot of oil. The amount of oil, I think, is over two... Iraq. Sorry, Iraq. Right. Uh, over two million barrels a day, which is pre, if you like, pre-invasion mm. and so on. <laughs> which is why we're there. <laughs> Basically, because of oil. But uh, if that continues and uh, these huge contracts signed, uh, that increases the amount of oil and so on. Oil and uh, these elections will hopefully stabilise Iraq. OK, John, staying in the region, yesterday, is it yesterday, the Foreign Office, your lot, expelled an Israeli mm. diplomat in London over 12 forged British passports mm. used in the killing of Hamas leader Mahmoud al mabour in Dubai in, in January. I mean, the serious organised crime agency, Soccer. Um, why don't we do a television show? I mean, it's going to be a drama, isn't it, Soccer, yes, eventually? Uh, I mean, we're fed up with all the other ones. I mean, Poirot's had his day. Um, they said um, that they've been investigating about these forged passports, not the assassination itself. What fascinated me... I, OK, I accept that you kicked the guy out. Nothing's happened at the other end. Uh, and, and your man, uh, David Miliband, the Foreign Secretary, got up and said, they're a dis- disgrace for doing this. He didn't well, say it was a disgrace for, for assassinating this guy. No, but he almost said that, and it was interesting that he was so firm, in my view. Normally, he, he's been a sort of looking both ways sort of Foreign Secretary. But I wonder whether it's the fact that he is himself <coughs> of, of Jewish faith, which... 
encourage him to be so firm. But it wasn't just the expulsion of the Mossad director here in London. It was the stern warning on the website of travel advice to all people going to Israel that they should be extremely careful. But with their passports? With their passports. Yeah, but anybody who goes through Ben-Gurion yeah. ben Airport mm -hmm. knows that their passports are photocopied for, for future use. Well, of use. course, but going into banks yes. and all the rest of it, they want to be careful. The, the, the third uh, arm of, of the denunciation was the fact that um, Milliband demanded not just a private assurance that the use of British passports would not occur again, but he wanted a public assurance, which is They've tantamount to... Shimon Peres, was it? Yeah. Who said but, when it happened before, once before? Yes. He they, said, we won't do that again. We won't do that again, but they, they want to nail them down a bit more publicly. Now, the, the Israeli government can give that concession and make that statement, and then the Prime Minister changes tomorrow and expect to square one. Mm. OK. He's not bound by that. John, later on, let's talk about the Foreign Office because mm. I got the impression they were going bust. It's not a question of going bust, it's a question of people not giving them any money, is that right? Well, there's been a, a very long uh, investigation by the Foreign Affairs Select Committee in the House, which is a, an all-party organisation, and they've made a lot of important points, including the basic one that the Foreign Office is being greatly hindered by uh, the removal of the overseas price mechanism, which means that they are subject to the fluctuations of sterling, which has cost them 13% of the total budget. They've still got to pay their international dues to the UN, to NATO, to the Commonwealth, to the World Service, to the BBC, to the British Council. But there is the point being made that uh, you cannot have uh, any more cuts because the effectiveness of the Foreign Office is in being present on the ground. There should be no more closures, and uh, there should be, in fact, an expansion of the service. OK. But they're going to have a very Wait. hard time because the European Union will t will, is trying to take over their domain. I don't see Lady Ashton being able to take over the no, domain the e of the it's British the EU Foreign Commission. The, it's the EU Commission mm. which is determined to take over her domain. Ah, dead lost. Mm. Dead lost a lot mm. of them. Listen, uh, Martin, we, uh, any other business? We've got... We got 45 seconds to go, and then we're going to hear what's been in the newspapers this uh, this week. Uh, today, cluster bombs, cluster bombs. Uh, Britain said, right, everybody must ban cluster bombs. Everybody isn't going to ban cluster bombs. Of course not. You use cluster bombs if they're effective. Uh, and uh, if you want to obtain them, uh, countries, are not named the countries, will produce them and uh, sell them because they want hard currency, they want to earn dollars. Mm -hmm. And there are certain countries in Europe which want to earn those dollars mm -hmm. and they will make the cluster bombs for you. Right, John, uh, April the 12th, a big nuclear uh, conference in Washington. Uh, President Obama wants to get a deal with the Americans on arms control before that. Could, could happen, couldn't it, when he goes to Poland for this uh, visit? It's good because if you look at what happened to Hillary Clinton recently in Moscow, she got a pretty stern answer from uh, the Russians that uh, they'd have to wait a bit longer before there's a... Yeah, but a the Russians Russia. wanted to deal with the organ grinder, not with the... Mm, yes, but uh, she could carry the message back that it's going to be tough. OK, OK. Just one other thing that st uh, struck me... Um, Pirates, Martin. Yes, pirates. They seem to be heading for India now. Yeah, heading for India. These are the Somali pirates. Well, when you look at it, you've got an international task force mm -hmm. there. Even the Chinese, are, I don't know if they're still there. 
uh, and it's amazing that they're still active and they're still successful, you'd have thought they'd been wiped off the face of the Indian Ocean by well, now. One of those interesting aspects of the Somali pirates is what I heard from a friend uh, in, in Kenya, that the house prices have doubled in the last two years well, in Nairobi because the bosses of these pirates who operate off the Somali coast, which yesterday produced for the first time a... a, a a pirate being shot dead by the uh, armed security officers aboard a ship. But uh, it's really worrying the people of Nairobi that these uh, money launders are, are, are using property there. Come on, John. It's all subprime stuff. You wait till Lehman Brothers and Northern Rock get in there. That'll screw them. Uh, it's gone half past the hour. Uh, you're listening to Set Rep with me, Christopher Lee, and if you've just joined us, you can catch up the whole programme simply by going into sitrep at bfbs.com and clicking on Listen again. Now, let's have a look at the, what the papers here in London have been saying this week on other defence news. Here's Rupert Nicholl. Well, it's cuts again, of course. Um, and on Tuesday, the papers had MOD project, projects face cancellation over a £36 billion black hole in the budget. Mainly naval projects. It's the submarines, the aircraft carriers, destroyers, Nimrods and Lynx helicopters. Um, also, it would appear that the army's up to nearly full strength and General Sir Peter Wall is talking about manning control points, controlling the numbers of people, getting rid of the people whom they don't need in order to make sure they're up to full strength with the ones they do. These have always existed, according to the story, but they haven't always been used. Um, General Mackay, who was formerly the British commander in Afghanistan, accuses the MOD of being out of touch with reality and says we really must be getting soldiers um, out onto the ground. The operation requires a soldier to leave an operating base and talk to the population of that country, wherever you're going to try anti-insurgency. High-tech end, um, the Russians are back. Uh, we have... Which paper's that? Uh, this is actually today's Metro, um, and it has a blackjack bomber being intercepted by tornadoes. This has been happening, of course, as Putin wants to probe more, um, but... It's been happening for years, but it's back on back in the picture with publicity um, photographs of these big swept-wing supersonic bombers flying over UK. They're allowed to do it. They probe. We defend. Another Cold War spy plane is back, according to the Times. The U-2s are being used in Taliban to spot Taliban bombs. Incredible ability with photography and the fact they've got a pilot, he can react to what they can see. Um, the... Uh, down on the ground, much coverage today of the captain honoured for disarming 93 bombs. He's described as the real hero of the Hurt Locker War, Captain Wayne Owers. Uh, we've got the story here also from the soldier who was shot last November doing a press, uh, press coverage of how an Afghan cop emptied his gun and only hit me six times, thank God. He was lucky to be alive, others died. Uh, he's only spoken out for the first time today. Meanwhile, Robert Fox... In the standard, has got um, very accurate pinpoint bombing um, uh, of Taliban positions. Rupert Nicholl, thank you very much indeed. Well, still at the Zip Rep Round Table, the former Daily Mail diplomatic editor John Dickey, and from University, University College London, the global defence analyst at that place, Dr. Marty McCauley. Uh, Rupert, before you go, um, just a, a question. We were talking about. Uh, Gordon Messenger, uh, Major General Gordon Messenger, how the MOD has appointed him as the, I suppose, the spokesman of the Chief of the Defence Staff, is taking them a bit of a time to cotton on to the fact that if you put a guy up in uniform to talk to people, uh, maybe the media will believe them. 
It's a cycle over the years, isn't it? They put them in, they take them out, they put them back in, they take them out again. It's a long, long story. It does work, but then somebody else wants to control the message. Wait for the election. Wait for the election. <laughs> right, you're not standing, are you? Rupert? No, 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 of course not. OK, back to business. Next Monday, Chatham House. Um, John, ahead of the general election and forthcoming strategic defence review, the speakers will discuss how the UK can best address emerging and future threats in times of tightening budgets. Well, I mean, how do they know? It's very difficult, and if they're trying to do it on their own, even more difficult. I think it's got to be a coordinated review, including the Foreign and Commerce Office, the DFID People's International Development. Um, and before you can get anywhere, you really have to analyse what sort of time frame you're operating under. You're driving for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. Until you resolve that, you're just talking fantasies. One of, the, one of the problems, if you look at the, the, the ground rules for the Strategic mm. Defensive mm. Review, which presumably will start in the summer, mm. uh, whoever gets into power, they've got to think out to, at the moment, 2040. Now, that's only 30 years mm. out from planning to end of life. Uh, I don't know, a, hel a helicopter platform or a, or a fixed-wing platform at sea can last 50 years. Indeed, and they are terribly expensive uh, pieces to, to engage with. And, and that's the budget, but no it's going which, to be even five years' time. That, that's something that uh, whoever comes in, <coughs> Labour or Conservative, or even if Nick Clegg came in as uh, the man who holds the ring in a hung parliament, they have to face the bare facts that uh, the money isn't there for the big things. Right, They've Martin. Economise somewhere. I, I was going to say that uh, mathematical models of conflict are, of course, uh, mm. are not new. And, uh, Are they successful, do you think? Uh, I don't think so, but the mathematicians say it's the nearest you come to uh, a reality and uh, predicting the I mean, the what future. do they do? I mean, I've seen these little sort of blue balls and things go up, yeah, yeah. and we're all in the Arctic. I mean, it, it's, one of those, it, it's one of those sort of diagrams which I look at and say, well, do I happen to believe that, or do I just become a political scientist and get to the truth? They <laughs> <laughs> don't know either. Uh, the answer is, uh, it is, in fact, all about credibility. Uh, if you could sell this idea, it's like mathematical models in the financial world. They sell them brilliantly, and now they've all collapsed. Nobody mm -hmm. believes a financial model anymore. So therefore, a financial model, a, a mathematical model of conflict now, is a big, big question mark. Mm -hmm. Basically, how do you know? And then the mathematician gives you an answer you don't understand because he uses mathematical terms all the time, and, and you, st you sit there and you think you're dumb. Oh, I'm so stupid, I can't understand him, so he must be right. Listen, it's, I it's sat good through psychology. 10 years at school thinking that. Looking at the <laughs> it's um, good psychology. Yeah. Now, uh, come on, let's give him a hand. Uh, Martin, where do we see emerging threats? I would see the emerging threats uh, in uh, the conflict between uh, China and India and the dominance of Asia. I mean, you mean shooting conflict? Yes. Uh, if I were asked, uh, where would you expect uh, a, a shooting conflict? It would be on the Chinese-Indian northern border, uh, which involves Tibet, because the Chinese have armed that area now, and they're very concerned about Doesn't Tibet. that mean you don't do it if they've armed it? You know, they I think well, the Indians well, are clever enough to realise that there is a, a threat existing there, and they will not buy the... Sort of intimidation that goes with it. Mm. But they, what, they, the Chinese intimidation. Yes, the Chinese. I, I think <laughs> the, 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 the <laughs> Indians have got a very uh, sophisticated. After uh, all, they, uh, they're pretty practiced at it mm. since 1947 yeah, yes. in Kashmir. Yes, but, yes. but remember that uh, Tibet is a uh, is a sore on the Chinese body mm. politic, and uh, a lot of people in Beijing think they've lost 
if you like, the, uh, the legitimacy in Tibet. OK, if we don't have a war, John, uh, future threats that we ought to be taking far more seriously than we, we can afford to take seriously? All depends on how big a threat. I think there may well be a threat the day Robert Mugabe drops down dead. I think there's a big problem. Because he ain't going otherwise, is he? Uh, no, <laughs> and he's got the generals beside him who don't want to lose all the authority and perks that go with... So the they'll hang on but and not there let are more a lot of experts there who need looking after if things get nasty. And, what, I think, uh, and we're the people to have to do it. We're the people who have to do it. No, Martin, uh, we told them to Zimbabwe. go to Zen Rhodesia to, to make a new life just after the war, and I think we owe it to them to make sure they come back safely if yeah. things get bad. Okay. Zimbabwe is raw material rich. It's potentially a very, very rich country. The Chinese are in there already. So what are they doing? Sorry? What are the Chinese For the doing? minerals. Well, it's been a love-hate relationship because they've been mining and so on and giving credits and so on, and Bugabe has been difficult with them and so on. But if some clever Hang on, general... are you two saying that it's quite likely... In, in, uh, MOD always says, no, 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 we're not going to be there. We've had people on this programme from the MOD saying, no, mm. no way we're going to get there. There's got to be a contingency plan. There is a contingency plan. There have been people going out every 18 months just to check on the differences, and the wardens could report back. On the on the regional differences, yeah. I mean, they can get out via Bara or over into uh, Zambia, but it's not easy. It's a long trek. If yes. I if I were a Zimbabwean general, uh, if I were the cleverest uh, uh, Zimbabwean general, I would be putting out feelers to the Chinese embassy and say, look. When Mugabe goes, what is he, 84, 85? 86. 86. He can't stay there for another 100 years. Yes, he can. Uh, <laughs> you, you become my Praetorian guard, mm -hmm. and you and I can run this place together. No. It's a very simple no, no. scenario. It doesn't work that way anymore, no. Martin. No, you don't believe that, do you? No, I, I don't think uh, Zuma in South Africa would uh, let it go that no. distance. OK, we've got, we've got Martin's hypothesis that we could have a punch-up on the Indo... Sino, Indo, whatever it's called, border. Mm. Okay, um, John, you think in a minor way, perhaps Zimbabwe ought to be no. looking at. Is there anything else that we think? You know, we we can only do so much. And you've looked at the budget. We've looked at mm. the capabilities. We looked at difficulties <coughs> when we do go yeah. in somewhere. Is there somewhere else that we that we ought to be thinking? Yeah, perhaps we ought to keep the aircraft carriers because, or perhaps we ought to keep uh, the uh, nuclear option because. I think there's uh, still a need to look after the people in the Falklands. I know it's off the boil at the moment, but once the wealth under the ocean is continually attracting the Argentinians, I think we have to be very much on our guard there. Yeah. Uh, hang on, Rupert Nichols still with us. Um, I mean, having done the Falklands, I mean, yeah. been, in, been, in that, mm. been in that conflict, um, and you know, being the, the media expert now, is there somewhere you keep looking and saying, well, you know, we, we kept our eye off the ball on the Falklands. There's somewhere now that I read every day, just in the papers, not from deep background, we ought to be thinking about. Well, the Falklands, as you say, is itself significant. That's I think there's going to be a conflict because we're now, it's well armed. Mm. The, point, the point is they yeah. moved when it wasn't well armed. Yeah. Okay. The Boyle's big hotspot is surely Iran. Mm. I don't know how anyone can be uh, involved with that, but it's <coughs> Iran, the Middle East. OK, I want to f uh, think about somewhere else at the moment. Um, I'm just thinking about the Middle East. I'm thinking about Egypt because uh, the president of Egypt, Hosni Mubarak, is not in very good health. Uh, on the line from cross-border information, John Hamilton, 
John, Mr Mubarak is in a German hospital in Heidelberg, <coughs> University Hospital in Germany. Uh, he's recuperating from surgery. I think he had a gallbladder removed and uh, small intestine or something. That was earlier this month. Um, important? Yes, I think extremely important. Um, and I think the, the the panic which this briefly created in in, in Egypt before the, um, the, the 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 government got the situation back under control and was able to show um, TV pictures of, of Mr Mubarak uh, sort of functioning and sort of making decisions and showing that he was still in control shows just how important this is. Uh, people, there were rumours going around that the president was dead. Um, the last time they thought the president had died, um, the streets of Cairo, normally so packed with people, were completely deserted because uh, without Mubarak, uh, 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 if he dies suddenly, no one really has a clue what will happen next. He's got no obvious successor, although I thought there was a sort of dynastic approach for the whole thing. What about his son? Well, yes, I think everyone, everyone assumes that his son, Gamal, his, his second son, um, has been groomed for, for, for the succession. Uh, they've, they've sorted out the constitution. You, you have to be the, the head of an approved political party to be a candidate. Um, there's only one political party that, um, that, uh, that counts, and, and that's National Democratic Party, and um, Gamal Mubarak is, is one of the senior people in, in the party. So he's basically the only, um, under the constitution, I mean, he's likely to be the only candidate who, who would run if it came to um, to an election, which um, if, if personally Mubarak lasts until next year, it could do. But if Mubarak, there is an election due next year, isn't there? That's that's correct. There's an election due next year. But I think, um, but of course, Mubarak at his age, 82. I mean, he might not he might not get there. And then you have to try and work out um, as a, how they're going to sort of get from. Uh, a, Get, get the sun into in, into place. It might not be as straightforward as uh, people assume. Um, is it, tell me the the regional uh, interest in this. Well, if you, I think first of all that um, uh, Mubarak is is the oldest and and just about possibly the the, the most infirm of all those uh, North African military dictators. And so everyone, I think, looks. Uh, with great interest to see whether um, this idea of getting your son into the top job is, is really going to work. And so I think I'm sure that, uh, that uh, Muammar Gaddafi would, would be looking with great interest to see um, whether it's possible. We, we also know that um, President Abdelaziz Bouteflika of Algeria desperately wants his brother to succeed, and there's great opposition in, in Algeria to that. So, so from that point of view, I think there's a, um, people just wonder whether this dynastic idea really is going to function. Um, but, of course, Egypt as well is a massively important country in, in the region. It's important because of Israel and Palestine. It's important because... It Tell has, us why it's important because of Israel and Palestine. Well, because um, it, it, Egypt um, was, the, uh, so was, the, was the, the first um, country of the Arab world to, to make it sort of peace, peace with with Israel, and it's now got the supporting uh, the support of, of of America because of that. Um, if there's a change in, in in the regime in Egypt, and if that position changed, it would 
alter the entire uh, dynamic of um, uh, of politics in that part of the world. When we were talking earlier about um, things happening, events that we really ought to keep our eye on, and we don't, Mubarak's health is one of them, isn't it? I, I would I would say absolutely. Um, Egypt, a country of, of 80 million people, um, uh, the bastion of, of the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, we, we Tell us about the Muslim Brotherhood uh, briefly. Well, the Muslim Brotherhood um, is really the, um, the the main opposition party in Egypt. If, if there was an election, they um, they would definitely win. Um, but more importantly, the, uh, the the Brotherhood was founded in Egypt as a sort of the the basically the, the, the original Islamist political party. Uh, if you look at uh, any other Islamist political party around the world, if you look at Hamas in, in particular, and opposition movements um, in, in most of the other countries in, in North Africa and other parts of the Arab world, they all sort of owe their ideas to the Muslim Brotherhood that was founded in Egypt. No. So, um, so they all look back to Egypt to some extent. Uh, and and for that reason, um, it's, uh, it's it's Mubarak who who has managed to control them, the the Muslim Brotherhood and sort of neutralise them as a threat is um, is very important. And without him, everyone will be looking to whoever his successor to see whether um, that situation can be maintained. John Hamilton, thank you very very much. In uh, thank you much for joining us. I mean, I'm being waved at by the Dickey and, and, and by the Macaulay. The Macaulay point to hang make, on. Yeah. Dickey first, because that's the, alphabetical. The point I want to make is that there is a dark horse, if it may, may avoid yes. sounding ethnic in this case. Mohammed El-Baradai, who was the, oh, uh, yes. until recently the International Atomic yes, Energy yes, Director, yes. he has been uh, floating the idea that, given the right circumstances, he might stand, and his supporters have He got formed, cheered when he arrived back at the airport what, the other what day. They, what they call <clears> the National Association for Change. And he is demanding that the election must be free, though at the moment there's no judicial supervision of the election and there's no outside international monitoring. But if he were given enough encouragement, he might stand. Right, Martin. Yeah. I was going to make the same point, but according to the Egyptian constitution, uh, the only person who can stand is the head of a political party, and that political party must be represented in parliament. So right, for the which constitution, so the son, Mubarak's son's yeah, okay. The constitution has been written to eliminate the outsider. Mm -hmm. Al-Baradeh is the wild card, yeah. and if given the chance... Dark horse? Well, dark horse, yes. But, you see, if, there was a, uh, if they allowed a democratic uh, vote... Mm -hmm. Uh, as your speaker said, the Muslim Brotherhood nominee would win. Right. There you are. Um, you heard it on SITREP. Um, now, a Michael Caineism that not many people know that moment. Afghanistan is the second most corrupt country in the world. Now, who says so? An international survey conducted by Transparency International. And who's more corrupt? <laughs> As any trough-snouting Westminster MP knows, the masters of the corruption game are the Somalis. But the Afghan government is a fast learner, and corruption is seen as a major sticking point in the desire to secure peace in the region. Jamie Gordon reports. Afghanistan's President Hamid Karzai and his administration has long been tainted with accusations of dishonesty, and this despite setting up his third anti-corruption unit recently. And world leaders have been blunt in their opinions, including Prime Minister Gordon Brown. Sadly, the government of Afghanistan had become a byword for corruption. 
And I'm not prepared to put the lives of British men and women in harm's way for a government that does not just stand up against corruption. Part of the problem is our definition of corruption, which could include bribery, nepotism, position buying and so on. These things have been entrenched in these countries after centuries of clan patronage. What's abhorrent to us has been normal practice throughout history, but in Afghanistan now it threatens the lives of British soldiers and their allies on the ground. At President Karzai's re-election in November, he vowed again to make corruption his biggest priority, although he still managed to deflect some of the blame. media has been talking a lot about the corruption. This propaganda has affected the government. This is a huge problem and we are serious about this. A report for the World Bank in 2008 suggested that at local level in Afghanistan, petty corruption was accepted by much of the population as a way of bypassing formalities such as car registration, for example. The problem at a national level is one of trust. If important political players can be bought in any way, the implications for the security of the country are immense. And David Miliband, the foreign secretary, has said the success of the war in Afghanistan in many ways hinges on tackling corruption. He said that in five years' time, the Afghan forces will lead the uh, security effort right across the country. He's also set out very clearly how governance and a crusade against corruption is an important part of that. Now, it's deeds that matter, not just words, but we've got to make sure in our own interests, not just in the interests of people here, that it's followed through. Although comparisons between corruption in somewhere like Afghanistan and some of the issues facing MPs in the UK would be stretching it a little, there is something uneasy about the UK lambasting foreign governments when duck houses, cabs for hire and flipping homes are still on the UK's front pages. Jamie Gordon reporting for Citrep. Jamie, thank you very much. And when Jamie says flipping homes, he's not saying uh, those flipping homes. It's a technical term, apparently, that if you know how to do it, you make a bomb. You don't make a bomb, you make a lot of money. Okay, so that's it. When we tell governments like that of President Karzai to get cleaned up, then we mean it. But too often, when we look at this subject, we find another example of why we should be asking a simple question. Who are we to tell others to clean up their political act, as Jamie has just been suggesting? Just take this week. Jeff Hoon, the Defence Secretary, when we went into that most corrupt country, Iraq, he was caught bragging how he could pick up a few thousand a day, putting business in touch with ministers. Same thing with two of his friends, Patricia Hewitt and Stephen Byers. You couldn't wish to find three nice Blairites in a day's march round the money-making troughs of Westminster, could you? So, add this all to those MPs ripping off the system and the taxpayers' money, Uh, in their expense sheets, and maybe, just maybe, we should be asking, who are we, the British, to tell others to get cleaned up? (sighs) Martin, I mean, you, what do you think? I mean, historically, it's all the same, isn't it? It's all the same. Now, the the only, the country which comes out top in the anti-corruption league is... Anti? Anti-corruption league is Prussia in the 18th century, capital Berlin, for three reasons. One, the rule of law. Secondly, it was a poor state. And thirdly, the Lutheran Church. Uh, and uh, uh, therefore, Prussia came out uh, top. It, is a, it was and is probably the least corrupt uh, state in Europe. But if you then go to the modern world, if you look to the Arab world, 
personal connections and so on. If you look at Russia, Medvedev, President Medvedev is complaining that corruption is getting worse by the day and he can't do anything with it. Uh, and there's campaigns and so on. In other words, it's genetic. If you look at China, the Guanxi system, which is a network system, the Communist Party says if we're not careful to destroy the Communist Party and so on. And what happens? It uh, gets bigger and bigger and bigger every day and so on. So therefore, corruption, we need a new definition of corruption um, because if it is just oiling the wheels uh, and getting uh, families uh, and businesses uh, to cooperate and smooth business, you can't really call that corruption anymore. John? But we should be setting a better example. It's not just the expensive scandal, the lobbying. I mean, MPs are at it all the time. They're taking uh, sponsored visits. Uh, one in particular I can think of has been four times to Cyprus. And he doesn't... What for? Uh, as a guest of the Cyprus government to uh, make them, uh, him uh, sort of sympathetic towards the negotiations going on between the, the Turkish Cypriot North, uh, Mehmet Ali Talat, uh, and President Christophias in the South. But, but that's all right as no, long as should, he declares it. He should declare it, but yet he asks questions uh, of the Foreign Secretary about what he's doing to facilitate a, uh, a settlement without dis- disclosing that he has been there. He's... Israel has invited, I should think, one in every three MPs during the past 18 months. They're all at it, but they don't declare it. They're like they're living in hotels, meeting the ministers and, and going back thinking they know anything about the situation. They don't. And keeping their hands on their passports. Mm. Yes, but if you, if, you, if you look at business uh, and if you want uh, to sit in, not the royal box at uh, the Emirates for Arsenal or Man U, if you want to be in the, in the director's box, you're invited by companies. And what was it like, to, Martin? You can go to Wimbledon, you can go to Lords, uh, you can go to Wembley as a guest of a company now and so on, mm. and you're wined and dined. Now, they don't spend that money because they like to look at your mm. face or your blue eyes. Uh, they think it's going to benefit their business. So therefore, if you stretch uh, corruption... Uh, to that far, it would practically embrace the whole uh, establishment yeah, and but, all I mean, business. This thing has a... I mean, I'm thinking in a, in a big effort, we say to people, get clean. Mm. Uh, and all those things we heard from Jamie Gordon earlier on, uh, you know, the Prime Minister, the Foreign Secretary is saying that, that Karzai has got to stop corruption, etc. Um, Rupert Nichols still with me. In your paper review, uh, there was something... In which paper was that? Yeah, this is today's uh, Independent, and it says that NATO has now asked who... Can you read it for us? Yeah, NATO asks whom to step down as a policy expert. This is the Defence Secretary, the or Defense former. The Defence Secretary was yesterday asked to step down from his duties at NATO following the involvement in the cash for access scandal. Um, so, given that it's clear the British government no longer supports Mr Hoon, the Secretary-General decided to ask him to end his participation in the Group of Twelve. God, John, I mean, that is, that is, is a so pretty much a of disgrace, a punishment handed out to a Tory who talked into camera to Channel 4 saying, well, it hasn't been made official, but I'm reliably told I'll be going to the House of Lords, and, of course, once I'm there, I will have all sorts of extra access... 24 hours later, David Cameron, the Conservative leader, said he will not be going into the House of Lords. <laughs> I think it's because of our but culture. There is also a demand that made that n- none of the three people you mentioned mm-hmm. who normally would be entitled as ministers to get a seat in the, in the Lodge should not be given that. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. they've been banned from the well, Parliamentary Labour dem- Party. Well, there is a demand for the Parliamentary Labour, but there is a demand from a lot of backbenchers on, on the Labour side that these three ministers who are anxious to make money out of lobbying should not be given an extra chance in the House of Lords. 
Okay, Michael Martin, the previous speaker, was disgraced. And they all said, they all said that man will never get into the House of Lords. Where is he today? Yeah. Sitting in Ermine in yes, the House of Lords. Yes. Yeah, picking up his daily yeah, allowance. Over 172 pounds a day just for signing up. John, it's, uh, can I come back? We haven't got much time. We'll come back to you on, as an extension of this. The Foreign and Commonwealth Office, I suspect, has a harder job now in the world than it's had for many years, and yet this thing doesn't, sort of thing doesn't help. No, it doesn't. Uh, but it has to get more uh, sort of support, I think, from this side. For example, half of the posts throughout the world are manned by a staff of under four. I mean, they, they keep on cutting down. The pass was sold uh, about four years ago. Until then, Sir John Kerr, who became the Lord Kerr of Kinlochard, boasted it for the first time for 50 years there'd be no cut in the budget and he refused to have any closures. But uh, Sir Michael Jay came in and he started selling off properties. He set a target of 10 million saved every year and he closed the consulates in Swaziland and Lesotho. I mean, these things just uh, reduce the impact and influence of Britain throughout the world. OK, Martin, just the last one before we go. Um, China has just announced it's the um, China's second biggest mobile phone operators to stop using Google search on its Android handsets. Uh, China, I think, has got more people using mobile phones um, than, than, than any other country in the world. Uh, it will benefit the Chinese search engine, which is by day, or I can't remember, I think it's by day. Uh, and what the Chinese are doing now, uh, apparently about 28% of businesses in China, foreign businesses in China have said that they find it now difficult. They don't feel welcome in China. In other words, China, if you like, is going nationalist. OK, they'll be up on the Indian border, according to you, next. OK, well, that's it, I'm afraid, for this week. My thanks to Martin McCauley and John Dickey and to Rupert Nickel. We'll be back here at the same time next week on BBC uh, Radio 2 at 4 o'clock UK time. Until next Thursday, I'm Christopher Lee. Mary Shin Hunt. Sit with Christopher Lee.